Hello, and welcome to Heart Failure Beat Healthy Living, a podcast brought to you by the Heart Failure Society of America. I'm Dr. Sabre Luzzi, an assistant professor and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am excited to host today's episode entitled Conquer HF, Changing Outcomes Now with Quality and Universal Equity, Redesigning Heart Failure Care, a second installation in our series on disparities in heart failure. Today, we will focus on opportunities for equity and actionable progress as a heart failure community serving diverse patients. I am elated to be joined today by three fantastic guests. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Khadija Brevet, Assistant Professor and Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Cardiologist at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Tucson, Dr. Nancy Albert, Associate Chief Nursing Officer and Clinical Nurse Specialist in the Kaufman Center for Heart Failure at the Cleveland Clinic. She is also the immediate past president of the HFSA. And Ms. Wanda Moore, Chair of the Sarver Heart Center Minority Outreach Program, the University of Arizona, also known as the Community Coalition for Heart Health Education for Women of Color. Thank you all for joining me today for this important and timely discussion. Racial and ethnic disparities in heart failure burden, access to therapies, and patient outcomes have been increasingly recognized over the last decade. Dr. Brevet, as a heart failure physician and equity-focused researcher, could you highlight what are the disparities in heart failure care today? Uh, first, thank you for the nice introduction and such great opportunity to be here to talk about these important, timely issues. Many that may not be aware, heart failure is the leading cause of death for many. And when it comes to people of color, it's two to three times higher rates of developing this disease, particularly when they're Black men or Black women. And the risk of dying from this disease is much greater for Black men and Black women than for other populations and appears to be escalating. And when we think about this, it's important to start to ask the question, why? And what can we do to change it? And some of those big whys and what can we do include prevention, access to care, and better outcomes. Dr. Brevet, thank you so much for highlighting this really stark and alarming state of affairs for for heart failure for racial and ethnic minorities, minoritized populations. Dr. Albert, in your experience as a nurse and as a cardiovascular researcher, where do you see key opportunities to really improve the delivery of heart failure care to diverse communities? Thanks for asking. Um, That's a really important question, and it's so diverse. Let me give you some examples. We know we have lots of vulnerabilities, not just racial and ethnic vulnerabilities or gender vulnerabilities, because the people that have racial and ethnic and gender disparities, they may live in a rural community. They may be somebody who has drug or alcohol abuse. They may be somebody who's elderly or has cognitive decline or frailty or depression. They're elderly. They may have polypharmacy. They may have health literacy issues or be socially isolated. So you can get an idea that the breadth and depth of opportunities is really quite immense depending on the individuals themselves and their family and community in which they live in. Also the comorbidities they may have and other medical problems or other social or economic problems. 
And so when we think about in being able to improve the delivery of heart failure care, we need to understand that there are many different issues and possibilities available. And we have to be open to thinking about that big picture. We want to patients to receive optimized medical therapies that involve drugs and also cardiac device therapies, and may down the road also involve advanced heart failure therapies, whether it's research therapies or transplantation or getting an an advanced device. And so we just need to understand that there are a lot of potential ways that we can really improve the delivery of heart failure care. Thank you, Dr. Albert. Ms. Moore, in in light of what Dr. Brother and Dr. Albert said, what's your perspective on opportunities to improve heart failure care delivery? Working in the community, I see a lot of opportunities. Opportunities such as better education for the patient, cultural competencies for physicians, most importantly, the impact of the social determinants, which have a great effect on the care that minorities get, and to provide access to all patients. We could use more minority physicians. There are very few to meet the population of the number of people that they serve. And then acknowledging and eliminating cultural racism. So, As you mentioned, systemic racism, I think it's important to look back on the events of the last 18 months. Really, systemic racism and bias have gained increased recognition in the medical community as progenitors of poor health outcomes particularly with the observation of disparities in COVID-19 survival and treatment access and with the very public death of George Floyd. Dr. Brevett, what lessons have we or maybe should we extrapolate to the pursuit of equity and heart failure care delivery from the events of the last 18 months? I think that was incredibly well said, Ms. Moore. These are major issues that are not going away. We have to make the decision collectively that this is not something that we will stand for any longer within our hospitals, within our hospital centers, our states, our our country, because it's going to require intentional changes in our policies and the structure of how our systems function, as well as at the individual level of how we provide care to our patients. I think with the shift the whole process of care that we're going to have to meet together as stakeholders, convene as individuals from multiple levels, that's including patients, including people that are making these laws, our policymakers, our community leaders, our scientists, to help identify using science, what are the best and most appropriate ways to change the way that we provide care so that we can achieve equity. And it's going to require, we already know, it's going to require addressing social determinants of health. It's going to require addressing bias that is both intentional and not intentional. It's going to require addressing structural racism. And it's easy to call it out as an issue and recognize it's an issue, but the harder work is actually changing it and doing the work. I think there are a number of different leaders in multiple different generations throughout this country who are trying to do this work. And it's going to require the support and decision that this current process is not feasible. It's not reasonable. And we have to change it. Really great points, Dr. Brevett. Dr. Albert, in your role as a leader in the events that unfolded over the last 18 months while you were governing, essentially, what were your takeaways and how did it influence your experience and, and thoughts for health heart failure care delivery? 
So for me, it really brought home that there's a great need for an increase in inclusion and in research of underserved populations, those vulnerable patients I spoke about earlier. And I think we also need to lead and champion the patients we serve. We need to consider that as providers, we as a team and as individuals are only as good as our weakest link. So if we're part of a team of 50 providers or 10 providers or five providers, no matter who who the people are on the team, everybody needs to come together and elevate care so that we pay attention to optimal medical therapies. It's really easy to say that our patients should be on optimal medical therapies, but when we meet with patients, first we have to assume they're going to be able to come in and spend time and and see us. But when we meet with patients, it's so easy for providers to say, hey, you're doing great. I'll see you in a few months, rather than taking the time to explain new drug therapies or to make changes in the plan of care, because changes in the plan of care require time and effort. And so there's a lot of areas that I think we still need to work on. Research is one, but certainly clinical care is another. And just having everybody on the team rise up and understand what the issues are and and also understand that we need to get better. Unfortunately, when you read the literature, we spend a lot of time in the literature talking about who are are our vulnerable patients and what are the issues. So we know what the issues are. We know about the increase in mortality and rehospitalization and poor quality of life, but we haven't spent as much time in finding solutions that really work and that are easy and that are not complex so that everybody can move forward together. I really like uh, that point about championing our patients and and finding solutions, being equity focused. Ms. Moore, specifically regarding the last 18 months and your work in patient advocacy, how did COVID-19 and systemic racism coming to the forefront of national attention impact your work in patient advocacy? The impact was tremendous. It was harder for us to get out in the community. And a lot of people we were afraid that had pre-existing conditions would not go to the doctors. And normally we'd go out into the community, we'd take one of the doctors from the Saba Heart Center with us to educate people on, on the, their health issues. But since we couldn't go out to them, we created a program to teach them Zoom so that we can connect with them and not just leave them out there. So we taught them Zoom, and then we did design a health information card that talked about COVID and symptoms and heart disease. And then we did a newsletter dedicated to COVID-19 in the minority community, and we distributed that because we needed to keep that reach. We also got a grant, and so we distributed healthcare products and sanitizers and stuff to the community. But the stories that we heard were patients, an African-American would call the hospital and give their symptoms, and they knew they had COVID, but they would be told to stay home and isolate where they really needed to be in the hospital. And so we lost patients that way. A lot of African-Americans died that way. They weren't allowed to go to the hospital, even though they had the symptoms. And so racism did that for them. That's how it works. But a lot of them, and believe it or not, very little to do with the social determinants because some of these people were middle-class, had insurance, had jobs, but they still were told to stay home. And so for us, that was a major, major challenge, but we worked through it 
We kept in touch with them. We provided every tool and resource we could to them to help them get through this difficult time. I mean, I had three very close people to me that worked with me. I think we lost three that I knew because of COVID and because they weren't allowed to go to the hospital. That's systematic racism. My goodness, Ms. Moore, that is that is incredibly illuminating and, and heartbreaking to just watch that unfold in the midst of trying to advocate. My next question for you is really, how do you directly teach patients how to stand against or armor themselves when confronting bias in the healthcare system, how to recognize it, how to deal with it, how to seek help? Well, teach from experience because I've experienced it. I had open heart surgery. I had incidents where I knew the doctor really wasn't into what I was saying. I had incidents where I didn't get the care that I needed to get before my problem got much worse. So when I can share that with the community from experience, they get it. They can relate to it and I can build their trust. And then I can encourage them to get to know more about what's happening to them, to know more about their symptoms and give them people that are doctors or nurses that they could call that might get them into the hospital, at least get to see them. So it was personal experience. It was community experience. It was sharing the stories of others and reminding them your life is important. You have to stand up and say, I'm sick. I can't go back home. So teaching them to advocate for their health and for their care. Once I said, when my doctor told me I had, had, I looked at him and thought, hmm, I have heart disease and you just checked me out in January and it's just July. So you do have to challenge sometimes, but because I didn't display all the symptoms or because I was an African-American woman, he simply took it for granted. But after that, I also teach the one important thing is when you're selecting a doctor, Think about it. Check them out. Check their history. Check somebody that you feel like you can talk to. And that's very, very important because a lot of them get ignored. They take a look at them. They send them home. Knowledge is power. And um, yes, equipping is. ourselves with knowledge, it, it just it can make such a tremendous difference. Doctors Albert and Dr. Brethret, when we think about vulnerable populations, and as, as Dr. Albert has already articulated, We've seen this enumerated in the literature. We know what the data is. How do we actually transition to confronting the systematic pitfalls where vulnerable populations are falling through the cracks? How do we systematically deal with this? So I think there's two really important things. And I also think that uh, Ms. Moore really laid the foundation here for my comments because she was right on target here. First, we have to recognize that patients either have heart failure or their heart failure is advancing. You know, we've, we've got tools out now that we didn't have before COVID because we recognized that we needed to reach out to patients. But we have to also understand that some of our vulnerable populations may not even have these tools available. So when we talk about using telemonitoring or telehealth, if a patient doesn't have a cell phone or they can't afford to um, get the internet access or they don't have a camera applied to it, it may not be as helpful as we want it to be. So we have to recognize who's advanced. We actually have this cute little mnemonic that we use in heart failures that says, I need help. 
And each of the letters of I need help stand for a scenario that may mean somebody has more advanced heart failure. So when we think about life-saving therapies that are advanced heart failure therapies, we just need to figure out a way to get the mnemonic out to people so they could say, oh my God, I meet this criteria. I've been hospitalized in the last six months. My blood pressure is going down. This is happening to me. Somebody told me I have worse heart or renal function. And so we can understand better and this will bring our patients into us. But importantly, we really need to figure out how we get patients referred to the right providers that you said, someone you can talk to, someone you could trust, someone who answers your questions, somebody who takes the time to explain the details and who does shared decision-making so that when a patient says, I don't want this and this is why, the provider listens very carefully and can offer alternatives. So we need to have the right personnel in place and the personnel have to really understand community resources. I tell people all the time that when my mother was very ill, before she passed away, I started learning about all of the resources that were available in the little town she lived in her community. And you don't realize what is there until you need to seek it out. And hospital employees and maybe doctor office employees don't really even know all of the resources available in their community. So we need to do a better job of make of increasing that awareness so that we can have more people who are available to suggest referral and get patients into the system when it's needed so that they're not delaying care and getting into trouble being advanced heart failure when we could have made huge inroads if only we would have had those patients available to us earlier. Thank you, Dr. Albert. Uh, great points regarding leveraging um, a collaborative network within the communities right there locally. Dr. Brett, the same question to you regarding addressing the systematic gaps how do we go about that so vulnerable populations don't continue to fall through the cracks? Thanks for that question. And it, it just breaks my heart hearing what was shared by Ms. Moore, because we, we see this, we know this, we see this as clinicians where patients are referred to late or when we do get the patients, the decisions that are made are not made in a way that's equitable. I've dedicated my career to addressing this issue of cardiovascular equity because it's seen time and time again how people of color, how women are not given the therapy that they need and deserve. And even as a Black woman, I recognize that in myself that I have my own biases and that I must address in order to provide optimal care to my patients. And I think it's that type of attitude that we need to have collectively as a community to recognize that even though you mean the best and you mean to provide optimal care and you think you may be providing optimal care, there's a high likelihood that you're not because you belong to a broken system. It requires a level of vulnerability on the part of the clinicians to recognize that you have bias, you live in a world that supports structural racism and that you are going to actively work to disembody those issues, to see when those policies exist that provide more opportunity for people because of how they were born than because of their level of illness, that there's a problem in that policy or a problem in the way that we're making that decision. 
I recently got a great score on R1 level funding to address this at the level of the allocation of advanced therapies, which will include providing evidence-based bias reduction and anti-racist training, as well as changing the way that we use these subjective criteria that we use objective ones, changing the way that we make these group decision-making processes so that they're done in a way that's more equitable and democratic. And I think that that's part of the answer, at least for the after the patients have been referred to us. But what about those that never get referred? Mm -hmm. We have to have those discussions with the outside clinicians within the community, cardiologists, internal medicine, family medicine doctors that are seeing these millions of patients with heart failure to make sure that they recognize that this patient needs referred, that this patient needs optimal therapy, that yes, the guidelines apply to them irrespective of their gender or their race. We have to have the mindset and recognize that we live in a colorful society, even though you may think you are colorblind, but people of color still have experiences where the world is not as such. And we have to listen to people, recognize where people are coming from, and figure out together what is the best next step. But we have to recognize that these problems are not just the problems of the person next door or the hospital across the street, but these are problems that we all have and we must all engage in if we do want true equity. Truly, truly excellent points. What, I, what I'm thinking of here just miss more your bravery and sharing your story and what you went through. And also in, in saying I needed a doctor to really be there for me. It makes me think a question to all three of you, how do we really build and foster a pipeline of physicians, of nurses, advanced practice providers, investigators who are focused, who are, who are going to commit as Dr. Brevet has in her life's work, who are, who are focused on equity and heart failure care how do we how do we train that? How do we get there as a, a workforce community? You know, we need to spend more time really helping people to, to become emotionally connected and to become emotionally understanding of, of what different people face in their lives. And sometimes it can be done through role play. Sometimes it can be done through really poignant stories that we hear, just like we heard a little bit about Miss Moore's story. It's not just pulling on our heartstrings. It's helping us to recognize that the problem exists, that it, it's alive and well, and that we all need to take action. And I really think it's really important to have leaders, whether it's local leaders or national leaders or governmental leaders, really push us along to really help us do something about it. Because some of the issues are costly to take care of or to, to make changes in, and we can't do it alone. I think that one of the very important things is the education of doctors early on to understand that if they're going into the medical field, then they need to understand that all patients are different and the cultural competencies and recognize that everybody has biases, but just don't let that affect your care for a patient. It's so important to get into the community because I'm out there all the time. We would go to churches, community centers, wherever people were, even at their homes to give talks and education 
and, and take the doctors with us so they could talk and be comfortable and ask questions. If they had more education and the doctors had more education, we'd have better patient care. So focusing on having them know a little bit more about their situation and their health conditions, the doctor knowing a little bit more about their culture so they could treat them fairly and equitably would make a huge difference. The most important thing I see is that when I go out in the community, I can build relationships and I can talk to people and get them to say, I really need you to go see a doctor. I need you to, this is what you told me, tell the doctor that also. And if that doctor doesn't agree with you, then you come home and you find you another doctor, but you need to have care. And, and because I have that kind of relationship with the people that I see, they will act on it. And they will also say, well, I don't understand what you mean by that. That's another thing. A lot of minority patients go into a doctor's office, whatever he says or she says, they take it. And if they don't explain it to them, then that they're not going to do the care they need to get better. So I tell them all the time, ask the question if you don't understand. And then if you have a computer, go home, go into your patient portal, see what the doctor said. Make sure you understand what's there because it matters what your condition is. If you don't understand it, you can't take care of yourself. So I teach people to read, to follow up, to ask questions, to be an advocate for themselves. And it really does make a difference. I had one doctor tell me, Wanda, can I be the doctor today? I said, okay, but I know what my problem is. So I'll tell you, but, but we must, we simply must educate both the patient and the physician. Absolutely. And Dr. Brevett, I know we're, we have some central themes here of education, actual mm-hmm. time spent with patients talking about the actual diagnosis and how to best care for themselves. And then what Dr. Albert mentioned regarding accountability for us as providers, as a community, that's going to come from multiple stakeholders. Do you have any other thoughts, Dr. Brevett, regarding the pipeline and the stakeholders These are all excellent points. I think diversifying the pipeline is going to be a major part of changing care. We've already seen fairly consistently from maternal health all the way to um, blood pressure control and barbershops that in populations that are systematically mistreated when they are cared for by clinician of the same race, ethnicity, they get better care and have better outcomes. So we have a long way to go. And if we were just looking at like black population of clinicians, although it's also issued with Hispanic, Latinx, as well as American Indian populations that are all incredibly underrepresented as clinicians, despite these populations having some of the highest levels of cardiovascular disease and heart failure, we have a lot of work ahead of us. But how do we diversify the pipeline? I think a big part of that is going to include leaders in the field, investing in people that don't look like them. Often, and I love mentorship is important to me, and I have a host of mentees across multiple levels across the country, but I'm only one person. I can only do so much. It's going to require other people, white men, white women, that are also willing to take on a mentee that looks nothing like them. We know of this concept of homophily where it's easy to get, even with a patient, someone that looks like you to be more in tune with 
supporting them and doing the things that they need and providing optimal care, optimal mentoring. And it's going to take that type of mindset if we're going to diversify the pipeline, because there's, as this sounds a little bit like a commercial, but we know that talent is equitably distributed. It's the opportunities that are not. And we have to decide that, you know, we're going to invest in people that don't look like us, that are have different backgrounds so that we can help them be some of the leading clinicians that help address these issues. Secondly, I'd I'd say that it's important that we consider the training of these clinicians to be. And I'm going to say something that's going to make some people angry. It might be illegal in some states now, critical race theory. Because what is it really? It's teaching how to unravel systematic racism, how to prevent the continued promotion of things like white supremacy. And I know it's hard to hear and some of the listeners may say, wow, that's a lot. But we have to recognize that this is really real. This is happening. And to consider how do these policies continue to systematically assist this person over that person and systematically one group is one race and then another group is a, is a different race. And we can look at that with how we accept applicants for our programs um, by not consistently using the same metrics that we know don't correlate with how great of a physician they're going to be, like the scores to be the main things that we use to select our fellows, our trainees, but use holistic um, metrics, look at community service, look at how they've been able to really care and change the way that things are. And I think that focusing on that population and developing this group will help our population of clinicians change a little bit by little. But it's going to it's going to take work and it's going to take work of those that are already practicing to recognize that, you know, hey, I have I do have blinders on and I want to do something differently. I want to make care better. I want to listen to my patients. I want to know more about a person. And one easy thing to do is to just ask, like, what's life like being you? And they may look at you really crazy and say, what are you talking about? But if you're genuine about this, then maybe the start of developing rapport and a relationship that can be trustworthy and lead to optimal care. Really excellent points, Dr. Brother. And what I'm hearing in the sense is that one, as a, a community building a workforce, we need sponsors across the, the levels of the pipeline, senior folks to sponsor those coming up and in leadership, and also an investment in equity-focused work and, and implementation science that's really solution-focused. And then we also need opportunities as a medical community doctors facing facing patients, nurses facing patients to have relatability and opportunities for relatability and conversations and understanding where we are in life, just to have that basic conversation in our interactions. Dr. Albert, one question I have for you is, what is the role of professional societies like HFSA in, in advocating for equity and really paving the way for the future in this regard? That's a really important question because there are many professional organizations out there in addition to the Heart Failure Society of America. And I really believe that they can provide some education, whether it's webinars or education through publications, education through forums, live forums, whether it's a, a, a discussion or panels to keep the notions alive and to really raise continual awareness about what the issues are. Again, if we can do that, 
and also use our organizations. And many organizations have an advocacy team um, where they work with the government or they work with other organizations and, and try to um, be stronger together, I guess you could say. And so we can look at the issues and figure out what focus needs to happen today and in a transparent way, better understand the problems and get people to start thinking about what the solutions are. Everybody has said this already, but we need to work together. We need to understand our own biases. We need to raise awareness that new solutions are needed and that research is needed. And in order to make all of that happen, I think we do need to rely on our organizations and the organization leaders to make this a common thread and not just a common thread, but a continuous thread because it's going to take time and energy to get it right. Absolutely. Ms. Moore, as, as we're talking about community-facing organizations and community engagement, I know you certainly have experience in your work in the community in terms of leveraging partnerships with churches or with sororities. How should we, as a heart failure community, go about better engaging the community and improving heart failure outcomes? That's awesome, because that is a major key. Um, to get the doctors, and I'm blessed in that with the Saba Heart Center, when I go out into the community, I can take the doctors with me and I take them to church. I've had them in the pulpit. I've taken them to mobile home parks, wherever the patients are, wherever they're found, we go take the information to them. And, and that is the key because once the doctors are out in the community, they're building relationships. They're getting the community to trust them. There's so many myths from minority patients about how doctors treat patients. And a lot of them are afraid to go to them. But if they're there and they can honestly and openly talk and ask questions, it makes a difference. I have my sorority, I have maybe 66 churches and all the organizations that I'm a part of that helps to engage individuals, especially minorities, to build a more comfortable relationship about their health care and building that with the physician. And that makes a difference. If the doctors could sometimes just go out in the community and have a health fair and talk to people, it would be amazing how many patients they would get after that. I know that because every month at the Saber Center, we have the doctors come and talk to a group of people who will come and just listen to what they have to say. And surely there's always one that's going to go say, maybe I'll use that doctor because I, I believe in what he said and I trust him or I trust her. So it matters to get out there, get engaged with the community so you can have the comfort of knowing that your patient, when they come in, can talk to you and really tell you what's going on. It matters to the life of the patient. It matters to the care of the physician. That's a really excellent point, Ms. Moore, and that we we can really maximize our impact by leveraging what's already in the community and it's already invested in the community. As we're winding down, the last question I have for all three of you as panelists, we've previously talked about the possible dream of achieving equity in heart failure care. If we look at a 10-year roadmap what is that one key action item that we must propose and implement to have heart failure equity be more realized at the end of that 10 years? Ms. Moore? Okay. My first one would be that the medical community acknowledge 
and work to eliminate racism. Dr. Harmon, who's head of the American Medical Association and works in North Carolina, North or South Carolina, said that he's been doing it for 30 years and he still sees the racism and the social justice denied and the impact that makes on healthcare for minorities. So if we could just get there, it would be a major impact to healthcare. That is agreed. Dr. Albert, what would be your key implementation task for the next 10 years? I would say that over my 40 year career in nursing, we still have not seen patients today be on optimized medical therapies. I think we need to rework our infrastructure and the way we pay for care. Uh, right now, even though we have many programs out there that are not fee-for-service or not volume-related, it's still a world of volume and fee-for-service. We really need to focus more on quality of care and ensuring that every patient we see is getting the same level of care, no matter what their color, what their gender, what their community life is like, what they can afford. And so we really need to have a, a system or a program that puts a lot more emphasis on quality of care so that everybody is being pushed to offer care that is equitable, no matter what is going on individually with our patients or how they come into us. I think that's going to take a lot of, um, it's going to take a long time to happen, but I really believe that that is one of the things in addition to increasing awareness and, and many of the other discussions we've had this evening. Absolutely, elevating quality. And Dr. Brevett, in our 10-year action plan, what is your key proposal for implementation and changing heart failure care equity? I'd say developing a concrete implementation plan for equity that is informed by the community as well as clinicians community leaders, hospital leaders, because if we don't, we keep talking about this as an abstract thing without putting plans into place, I fear we're going to be at the same place, if not worse, five, 10 years later. And I think we can use the principles, the frameworks that are available in implementation science to plan something, do it, study it, act. And by that way, you're titrating what you've changed each time until you get the response that you expect or that you need. And this is gonna include some short-term things that we can do right now, as well as some longer-term things that require additional planning and, and infrastructure in place. But we have to do this and do this now. A plan with accountability. Wow, I, I just have to say, Drs. Brevet, Dr. Albert, uh, Ms. Moore, this has been such an amazing experience having you on the podcast today. Thank you for all your contributions to, to the community, to our heart failure practice, and really to this dynamic discussion. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This is excellent. Thank you. The Heart Failure Beat Healthy Living is part of the HFSA Heart Failure Awareness 365 campaign, which provides information to patients, caregivers, and their loved ones about treatment, care, research, and advancements in the field. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. To find more resources related to heart failure, visit the Heart Failure Society of America's website at hfsa.org and follow us on Twitter and Facebook to see valuable heart failure awareness resources. It's been a pleasure guest hosting this amazing panel of women, this episode of the Heart Failure Beat Healthy Living. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us and have a great day. <laughs>